right. So, gentlemen, I mean, it's a it's a disappointing thing to learn, you know, any time that, uh, you know, you have your hopes set on something happening uh, as, uh, you know, the great Bill Crystal did in the past and, and many others before him. Uh, Mark Cuban uh, announced that he has no plans to run for the White House in 2024. Uh, he is selling his share of the uh, a majority stake, I should say, of the Dallas Mavericks uh, to the Adelson family. Uh, he plans to leave Shark Tank. But he wants to spend more time with his teenagers, uh, which is an odd choice because I would always choose to run for president over spending more time with teenagers, uh, even my own, perhaps. Uh, but he has no plans uh, to run uh, for the White House in 2024. How disappointed are you on a scale of one to infinity? I mean, I thought that taking Adelson money was usually a precursor to running for uh, for president. <laughs> exactly. But... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, his genius. I always thought it was funny that he was on that show because his business genius, I'm, you know, consisted of like mostly timing, right? And, okay, so um, this is this is the thing. He, like, that's kind of the truth of most of those people in the sense that, like, Mister Wonderful started out by buying Reader Rabbit and Mavis Beacon teaches typing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I always thought I always thought he was for a sweet deal, a pretty superficial dude. Um, and I I can't help cynic and communications professional that I am. I can't help but think that the spend more time. I mean, we all know spend more time with my family is code. So I hope that's not true, and I hope the guy's just enjoying an early retirement. You know, I always say that. Um, you know, money is wasted on the wealthy. You know, my 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 richest friends are also the biggest workaholics, and they don't take any time to enjoy their bread. So, I hope it's true that he's you know just going to take some time, be with his family, and and chill out. But you liquidate a bunch of you know you turn a bunch of the Mavericks into cash. I think it's two hundred eighty five million bucks. And oh no, sorry, that's what he pa- sorry that's what he paid for the that's Mavericks. What he paid, yeah, no, 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 you know he's going to make much more. You know, whatever you know, over a billion. So he turns all, he turns the Mavericks into a bunch of cash. So he's going to spend more time with his family. Family. I'm suspicious. I'm going to put a pin in this. <laughs> uh, well, we'll see. I mean, I think there will be some kind of recruitment, you know, effort uh, by no labels. Uh, and, uh, and certainly, you know, basically everybody who, you know, wants to see him on, you know, has thought about him being on some national ticket, because if you're going to be on one, this seems to be the the cycle when you're going to do that. Uh, but I think Cuban is actually smarter than people give him credit for. And I don't think that he's going to fall to that lure. And I still think he likes it's sort of uh, being in that will he won't he sort of space as opposed to actually diving in and having people, uh, you know, uh, scour over everything uh, with a fine tooth comb. You know who else was like that? Donald Trump. For yeah. years and years, right? Yes, for years and years. Um, though I do think, with, you know, if you're looking at sort of the third party thing, you know, and this may seem or sound odd, Cuban to me feels like a more partisan figure than mansion being more of like a trans partisan figure if that yeah. makes sense um i mean look you know on 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 just sort of like present at least presenting or trying to present is common sense i think that that's something that cuban does well ish but you know it's not like that he's throwing bones out there for anyone you know right of center now and again i mean it seems like he is you know kind of more conventionally centrist democrat um as opposed to you know conservative Democrat, mm-hmm. you know, Joe Manchin. Yeah, Chamber of Commerce, Harold Ford Jr. kind of yeah. that's the vibe he he threw off 
to me. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The the thing that I think also is true of Cuban is, you know, I mean, he, uh, you know, he's 65. If you look at the kind of field that's there right now, you're like, dude, I've I've got another 12 years to decide whether I want to run. Yeah, he's a spring chicken. <laughs> also, I mean, the wordplay, you know, you have to think about the wordplay possibilities. Join the Cuban revolution. You know, there's a lot. See, there's a lot see, you can do with it. That's that's why that's why Kennedy Cuban works so well. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> all right gentlemen um this is thunderdome and we have many things to talk about that have happened over the course of the past two weeks because we took the uh, week off for thanksgiving i hope that you both had great thanksgivings uh the uh the biggest kind of news within actual news within the republican primary front is the consolidation over thanksgiving dinner around the idea of nikki haley uh, as being the the donor centric figure uh, that everyone is glomming onto at the moment, and uh, you know, chief among those, uh, but not alone among those, of course, being the Coke Network and uh, the endorsement that she received from Americans for, for Prosperity. And I want to get into kind of what that means, uh, the good and the bad of it, uh, in a minute. But I just want to point out that that is is something that is perhaps not as important. As some of the other major donors who are who are flocking to her uh, at this particular moment and basically deciding on betting on her over Ron DeSantis uh, in advance of Iowa, um, including, uh, you know, even uh, the, you know, some figures that she she may not want to be backing her. You know, uh, the Politico headline, J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon, Democrats should boost Nikki Haley is not exactly the kind of thing that you want if you uh, are in this particular moment trying to define yourself as as the alternative um at least that's my own opinion does this donor help i mean we've we've talked about this before but th does this donor consolidation for haley help her or does it kind of send a message that allows ron DeSantis to position himself as being i am the clear anti-establishment alternative in this race and i'm now the only one effectively I think you'd rather have the money support than not have it. Um, and everyone wants to be with a winner. I mean, if you look at kind of, you know, if you look at the national polling or even some of the state polling, you know, DeSantis has been on a pretty steady downward trend in a lot of places. Um, now, do I, do I think that all else being equal, you know, going into this, you know, if we were having this conversation a year ago, yeah, DeSantis had a much clearer path to putting together a coalition to to challenge Trump, but look, it's it's almost December now, and you know what? He didn't, and and, and maybe there will be some rapid he pulls out of his hat in the next six weeks or so. But you know, why would we believe that that you know anything would change in that period of time relative to what we've all observed over the last you know number of months? Um, so so I, so, but let me just let me just read you this you know, sort of list of things from the Wall Street Journal. Billionaire Ken Griffin, founder of investing giant Citadel, one of the nation's biggest Republican donors, said he's thinking about supporting her. Uh, former Trump advisor Gary Cohn, UBS banker Mike Santini, co-hosted a Haley fundraiser and the Upper East Side in Manhattan. Ken Langone, billionaire Home Depot founder, also contemplating support. The only person I see who can give Trump a run for his money is Nikki Haley, he told CNBC on Monday. Uh, this is, you know, this is kind of a litany of people who you definitely want to be supporting you when you're running for president, but like at, at this kind of last minute coalescing, you're throwing money at this campaign 
in terms of, you know, ad dollars and the like, betting that she can turn, uh, you know, uh, the momentum that she has to the degree that she has momentum, we're talking about single digit upticks into something that can actually, you know, run off of a win in South Carolina uh, and actually play uh, in, in all of these states across the country where, you know, she basically has no operation, nothing stood up uh, and, you know, could easily be described, but, uh, you know, by Trump as being kind of a, a pro-war throwback, you know, uh, somebody who, you know, she, represents kind of the party of the past. Yeah. So, uh, so the, the, all the names you just mentioned and presumably others will come. The question I have is, you know, it's certain, and I've argued this in the past, and it certainly seems you could make a case that there's almost like a, I don't know, first bet free fan duel aspect to this, where it's like, these guys are going to spend X million dollars in the presidential. And so it's not a matter, you know, they're not content to sit out. Um, and so it's a matter of, well, where's that money going to go? And at a certain point, it's like a process of elimination there. Um, and, you know, you know, that's that's kind of <laughs> I'd say, but that's kind of the generous case for why they're there. This this sudden movement of that money to her. I, I'm of the opinion that it's not going to make a difference for some of the reasons you mentioned. And just because, you know, she's running. Oh, by the way, she's running 50, you know, five points or so, 50 points or so behind the front runner. The one thing I will bring up is, you know, and it's <laughs> it's probably not true, but it's actually the most plausible plausible far out explanation for this that I've seen, which is that, you know, we know that a lot of these guys, um, you know, when Trump wins the nomination, let's say if Trump wins the nomination, and certainly if he wins the presidency, are going to come to the table, and they're going to do business, some of them might even serve in his administration on various, you know, like the economic council or, you know, other capacities. Um, but they're certainly going to want to have that access. And that's kind of the whole point for some of these guys. And so we know they're going to do business. We know they're going to, you know, get in line the same way they did in 2016. So the far out theory I've heard is that, you know, indeed they have come to the conclusion that Haley is running for Veep. And they think that there's a good chance that even if they back Haley, Haley will be Trump's running mate. And they'll still be in Trump's good graces. Now, again, is far out? Yes. But that's actually that's actually the one far out theory I heard that actually kind of makes sense of this sudden move on that. I will say on on um, AFP in particular, um, you know, uh, those guys. So I think it's important to separate Americans for Prosperity from the Kochs uh, and, yes. and really, you know, Charles Charles Koch in this case. Um because, you know, Jane Mayer, the worst political reporter in the history of the country, had created this idea that there was this like unified, you know, and just and just to be and just to be clear, when he says uh, the worst political reporter in the in the country, it's like one and then there's this giant gap, like, like, like there's there's not it's not even there's nobody. Number two is so many degrees lower. It's not really even debatable. Right. She sort of entrepreneurially started the idea that there was this all seeing, all knowing monolithic, you know, party controlling, you know, pentaveret um, thing that is the Coke apparatus. But in fact, you know, they spent a, a lot of money on a lot of different causes. And AFP is kind of the most directly political of the causes that they support. And I, you know, they're just, it's just a fact that they're not of one mind, that they're not the same 
entity that so AFP, I think, you know, I say that only only as preamble to saying I think AFP's play is a little bit more about policy and just sort of putting down a marker that they want to support sort of traditional Republican economic policy, tax policy, those sorts of things. Um, I think it's that that play is a little bit more about putting down a marker contra sort of state state power. DeSantis style populism punishing yes. corporations style stuff as as opposed to like it being a play on thinking she might actually win. So yeah, I think that one's I a mean, little it, different. It can almost be read as a a coke defense of of uh kind of pro pro corporate pro uh business tax policy and government policy uh, as opposed to the DeSantis crackdown on Disney. Uh, which right. riles up a lot more people than I would have expected, given that these were a lot of the same people who were railing about corporate welfare for about 15 seconds back around the Tea Party days. And, you know, it's interesting because the other thing I noticed on Twitter was the very mild uh, comments from Matt Gates of all people, after the AFP announcement. And he was just kind of like, I, I just paraphrase, he's like, I, I, I just, I don't, I don't get it. You know, they're, you know, they've supported so many, you know, anti-war, um, you know, uh, causes in the past and so much, so much of a restrained American foreign policy in the past. And they're backing this, you know, horrible warmongering neocon, which is, you know, <laughs> Gates and Co's line on, on Haley. But, you know, I think that the answer to that, I mean, to the extent that it deserves an answer, the answer to that is, yes, it's about, it's about tax policy. It's about free markets. It's about all of those bread and butter, traditional conservative domestic, you know, Republican domestic policy. And if you think about it, and just to go into sort of the, the, you know, the internal politics read of this, the, the other person, the other figure, uh, the other female Republican who this uh, same kind of group and portion of people have backed to the hilt is probably the most likely Trump veep pick. And that's Christy Nome. Uh, Christy Nome, who, you know, got a lot of criticism from the social conservative side, uh, you know, over her positions on a number of different policies within the state, uh, positions that she said would, you know, if if she put forward sort of different legislation on trans issues and the like, that she would drive business away from the state. Uh, and so if you kind of look at it, that's actually quite consistent. Um, the other thing, by the way, to the, to the uh, you know, warmonger neocon point, I, as I think I said many, many episodes ago, uh, Nikki Haley's time in politics doesn't really coincide with the criticism of her of her quote unquote neoconservatism. I'm not saying she's not a neocon. She's clearly surrounded by a bunch of neocons in terms of of advice, and she might end up being someone who's in that same position. But are, are we saying that she's a neocon or that she's a hawk? Well, but I, see, I still think the, that distinction is important. Well, well yeah. but I think it is an important distinction. And my my point even more is that. You know, the, the idea that you would kind of put her into this category when she never had any authority during her time in government, uh, you know, that would have anything to do with this. You know, she comes up through state government. She's a governor, you know, during this this, this whole period. She doesn't vote on these different things versus someone like Noam, who I've pointed out in the past, you know, has like a, a record of basically, you know, down the line 
uh, being opposed by virtually everybody who was kind of a, you know, conceivably an anti-war type uh, when it came to NDAA votes, when it came to uh, AOMF votes and the like, because she was in Congress. We didn't get that same kind of record from Nikki Haley. And so all we have is rhetoric. And so I think people are just kind of putting on top of her this idea that she's this, you know, um, you know, pro-military industrial complex person when she might just be a traditional Republican hawk like we've seen, you know, like, let me let me put it this way. I'm not sure I understand that just the difference between Nikki Haley's foreign policy positions uh, and Ted Cruz's foreign policy positions. Yeah. Okay? And are they distinct from Tom Cotton or from Marco Rubio? Uh, or, you know, like, I'm, I'm not saying that she's Rand Paul. I'm not saying that she's closer to sort of where a lot of people, you know, might want her to be. But I just don't see the indication that she's John Bolton. And I'm I'm trying to, like, you know, figure out that kind of uh, I think a lot of people have put her in that without necessarily having the proof in terms of her record to claim that. Yeah. And I mean, look, she was ambassador to the U.N. for a year and, and change. And while there, she, you know, gave a bunch of fiery speeches that were very sort of traditional rah-rah American exceptionalism kind of speeches. She certainly wasn't a kind of retrenchment, America first uh, isolationist type like some of, you know, Trump's own instincts, own schizophrenic instincts, and also certainly those of his big followers and his big disciples like, uh, you know, uh, J.D. Vance or somebody like that. Um, so, there, you know, that there, there was, I guess, that little lens into that world. She also didn't stay that long. And perhaps for, partially for those kind of reasons that she didn't, you know, see things, you know, fully eye to eye with the, you know, foreign policy, other foreign policy thinkers in the Trump administration. I don't really know the story of her. Yeah, the deep foreign there, policy you know? thinkers that he brought on initially, you know, <laughs> right. uh, people like Rex Tillerson. Um, the the other the, the flip side of that, though, is I completely agree with them when they go after Haley on immigration, because I think that there's a long history of her rhetoric on that. That seems to me to be not basically updated from like 2008. Um, and that's where I think that, you know, frankly, if she ever actually had the kind of momentum that would make her competitive with Trump in states that he cares about, uh, not, you know, m meaning Trump can write off losing South Carolina to her or having her or having an effective tie uh, based on the fact that it's her own territory, he'd still, you know, obviously be mad at it, but it's not the yeah, same. Yeah, but isn't as, all like, the territory his territory? I mean, he's, you know, he's the you presidential know. Avon Barks. They're all his corners. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's well, but it's the it's the toddler mentality. All the toys are mine. <laughs> all the ones except for the broken ones. Even those are mine. You're just allowed to play with the broken ones. <laughs> the, yeah. the, the uh but my thing is that I just think that she would be hit particularly on that. You're, well, you're so, a bushy throwback on on immigration. Yeah, and she and here's here's an example where I think the the read the read the room uh, phrase that the left likes to throw around a lot more often than the right, it you know gets a little bit of a bum rap in politics. There's it's almost entirely about reading the room, and that doesn't mean being a liar or not speaking out or not being courageous on issues, but. You know, one thing Haley's been kind of guilty of on the immigration question, to your point, is like not reading the room. I think there's room for a position on immigration that, you know, whatever wants to, which I guess is like roughly my view, um, if anyone cares, which is that, you know, let's let's br keep bringing 
geniuses from other countries into the United States to innovate and make the rest of us a bunch of money. And, and um, you know, legal immigration is good so long as, you know, there's assimilation and there's social cohesion and it's done, you know, through the legal process. But the, her problem, Haley's problem, is that she makes all of those noises at a time when the by you know by far the most important fact of immigration in the US is an unprecedented and completely unsustainable influx of you know migrants whether they're asylum seekers who have you know uh, abused the system or whether it's you know the administration looking the other way or some of these caravans or whatever it is you know that is the you know bold faced fact on the ground just ask you know the mayors of half a dozen democratic run cities and she is definitely guilty of just by sort of motor reflex talking, you know, like you said, like a Bush era um, uh, functionary on that stuff instead of, you know, mm -hmm. zeroing in. The good news for her, I think, is that's a pretty easy fix. I mean, it's not like she's against border security, you know, presumably so um, and shutting down, you know, the, you know, and ending the migrant crisis. So she just, you know, she needs a little bit better advice on that. Yeah. Um, so I want to shift to something that I know a piece that you uh, both read. Uh, Donald Trump's campaign has now sent it out three times uh, and uh, and it has been uh, blasted around uh, and was receiving uh, critiques uh, online over the last 48 hours or so, uh, it, which is a piece by Sean Trendy uh, at Real Clear Politics uh, headline. Not only can Trump win right now, he's the favorite to win. Now, I want to put my cards on the table. Uh, I used to have a lot of respect for Sean Trendy. I've interviewed him many times. I've lost a great degree of that respect over the course of the past three years uh, based on both his predictions being wrong and uh, him being part of this whole unskewing the polls effort in 2022 that was you know, really kind of inaccurate because the polls in 2022 turned out to actually, if anything, you know, favor Republicans uh, far more. Uh, than they ought to. And then he participated in the uh, Virginia redistricting where he was paired with a with a Democrat and where the opinion of most Virginia Republicans uh, is that he acted like an independent and the Democrat acted like a Democrat. Um, and that that's how we got the districts that we got that ended up with Yunkin coming so close, uh, but not achieving uh, the kind of uh, result that he wanted. So I have some some latent animosity toward Sean Trendy that I just want to put on the table uh, to you know but, be clear. Well, well, uh, One question, though, said, in fairness to Sean, though, Ben, yeah. like Virginia Republicans picked him. And it's not like and I I, I think. Yes, but they didn't pick him initially. They didn't pick him initially. That was only after they were forced to pick him. So uh, that that's one point. Um, but but the other thing is that, uh, you know, and, and and Virginia Republicans, again, not known necessarily for being very smart when it comes to a lot of these things. But that being set aside, he's still someone who is very much a respected political analyst within his field. Uh, and uh, he has been, I think, pretty consistently bullish on Trump's chances uh, in terms of this election uh, to the point that he's one of the few analysts outside of kind of that, you know, that corner of people who are basically viewed as being like Trump, uh, uh, you know, people who do polls that are designed to be shared by Trump people, um, you know, who who they turn to and promote as the campaign has over the course of the last 48 hours, like I said. With this, with this analysis, I'm curious about your perspective on it, uh, and uh, and particularly whether you know one whether you think his analysis is correct. Not only can Trump win right now; he's the favorite to win. Um, but uh, you know, in terms of kind of the drill down, 
I feel like the the real question here is how much of this has to do with the fact that nobody's hitting Trump, which is something that is left unmentioned entirely in his piece and which I kept waiting for him to mention, meaning that no one has spent any money against Trump. Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis have been spending money against each other. Okay. Uh, the, the Biden administration has been spending money promoting him. The only degree to which they've been spending money against Trump, uh, you know, was in the midterm elections last time around. Uh, and even the club for growth, and this is a funny thing, you know, which is are adamantly opposed to Trump's reelection has actually been spending some pro Trump money. If you, if you include the fact that they've been promoting their, the candidates that they like association with Trump in terms of their primary contests that they're playing in. Nobody's spending any money against him. And it seems to me like he's basically in the same position that he was in 2020, if one or two points different. Why am I wrong? Well, one or two points has been a lot in recent elections, but I, I don't think that you're wrong. That I think that Trump's numbers are probably unusually stable at this point. But that said, and I think there's something Dan has said before, is that, uh, you know, Trump is a pretty probably a pretty high floor, low ceiling guy. Um, and you know, I, I think one of the things, and I don't think that Trendy talked about this as much in his piece, but it's it's not just, you know, let, let's assume that Trump gets a good chunk of the votes that he got in um, 2020. I mean, it, it's possible that you know, Biden is going to suffer from worse voter erosion than than Trump is. I mean, You've seen some of it um, with with the youth vote. I don't know it's necessarily that they're going to start voting. The uh, the, uh, the Hamas vote, I think you mean. Yeah, the, the Hamas <laughs> vote, right? Um, but you know, sort of the the you know the kind of green slash oppressor slash you know kind of the the ultra progressive Democrats. Uh, but you know, of you know two two you know voters that don't show up for you know Biden, right? Those are you know two less votes that Trump needs to to get in any you know given precinct. You know, I, I I think that the one thing, and I think that Sean did get at it a little bit, but not in the way that you presented, Ben, which I think is probably the better question. And it was around, and maybe this was sort of in some follow-ups that he had on on uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, um, where you know people saying like, I think they raised this point. Oh, you know, well, the, this other shoe drops for for Trump. And I think this is one of those ones where, again, as somebody who has you know follows Sean and um, you know again, think really, really highly of him and, you know, historically think he's been a really sharp analyst. Uh, you, know, you always get the sense that Trendy is definitely not a Trump guy. And I, I think that's the one place where actually his personal preferences almost oh, sort I, of I thir- No, I thoroughly agree with that. I would just to be clear, I, I am not in any way uh, suggesting that about him. I, he, he's, yeah. an, he's an analyst. I think he's, I think he's a good analyst. I've just disagreed with his analysis in the same way one might disagree with, you know, uh, somebody who recommends gambling in a certain direction for a certain amount of time and they just get cold. But yeah. anyway, go ahead. I, I'm, I'm let, let me put it this way. I, I'm fading Sean Trendy, not attacking Sean Trendy. Let's put it that, that, that and, and that's that's fair, right? But I, I think the fact that Trendy seems to be sort of personally negative on Trump actually, I think, might make him skew a little more toward Trump in a counterintuitive way because yeah. he'll make the point. It was like, look, well, you had him you know, sleeping on his, sleeping around on his, you know, pregnant supermodel wife with a porn star. Um, and that didn't move the numbers. Uh, you know, where is, you know, we've seen polling that, you know, if Trump is, is convicted, 
Um, and again, you know, numbers are, you know, just, you know, ink on paper, but you know, that you have, again, going back to one or 2% is a lot uh, that, you know, 5% of people that would be inclined to support Trump, all else being equal, but that 5% would not vote for Donald Trump as a, as a convicted felon. And I think that Trendy seems to be much more skeptical of that just because, again, you know, we've seen this for the last, what now, almost eight years of, you know, nothing really seems to stick to this guy. I, I, I think it's, I think it's, you know, look, time will tell on, on election day, but, you know, and maybe the answer is somewhere in between. Um, and, and I think for, you know, for some people, right. And, you know, I'm probably in a minority on this. It's, it's sort of vibes of like, you know, who, who are you more mad at closer to election day? Are you more disgusted by yeah. Trump's behavior or you're more disgusted by whatever thing Biden has had to probably do in the last few months to try to shore up among progressives? Um, you know, and, and again, I think it's one of the ones where, you know, I, I don't think he's he spoke to it, but you know, not talking about sort of the implications of a of a third party candidate. Um, but I think that you know to say that Trump is 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 worse than a two and five shot, which is you know not crazy. Um, you know, he's like, would any of us, if we woke up the day after election day and had been you know sort of Rip Van Winkle, would anyone be? I would say even more than mildly surprised if Trump was reelected, I wouldn't be. Um, no, I, I don't think you would. I mean, it, major ballot, you know, I mean, yeah. after after shocking the world in 2016, of course not. You know, I, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Dan. So so I don't want to not to get too philosophical, but like the question of whether Trump is the favorite, we have to be clear by what we what we mean by that, like. It's not like Schrodinger's cat where there's an answer to the question, you know, the cat's either alive or dead inside the box. And there's an answer to the question today about who's going to be, you know, the winner of the 2024 presidential election. It's not like that's been decided and we're just placing bets on which is statistically more probable. I think he is the favorite today. And the simple argument for that is fairly consistent and repeated polling in the last month or so that shows him as the favorite. The question what what we really need to be talking about, and John got at a lot of this, is, you know, whether given what we think is likely to happen in the next year, that advantage will hold. And I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons to think that it won't. I mean, I, I think there's a it's 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 much easier and I feel much more confident, unfortunately, saying that he's going to be the nominee. And the reason I think he's going to be the nominee is because, you know, you have the the court stuff and there's a possibility that the court stuff will chip away, even if there are no convictions at that point um, it, during the primary season, uh, which there won't be, uh, barring some real surprise, you know, that will chip away a little bit at his numbers. There will be an effect if there's a kind of surprising outcome in Iowa that will chip away a little bit, although we've seen that the winner of the Iowa caucus generally does not win the nomination in Republican politics this century. So, but that will move the needle a little bit. You know, there are other things that could move the needle a little bit, even in the primary, for instance, even in the primary third party additions could move the needle. We know that primary voters are capable of voting strategically. And I'd be curious, and I expect we'll see a lot of this, be curious to see how a mansion or a Kennedy is influencing primary voters in the Republican well, race about can, today. Can I, can I interject something on that? And, and we don't, I don't really actually want to spend that, that much time on it, but this weekend, Saturday, uh, uh, RFK Jr. is holding a rally uh, in Salt Lake city. Uh, the requirement to be on the ballot in Utah 
as an independent presidential candidate is a thousand signatures and five hundred dollars. So the point is, he's going to be on the ballot in Utah. Like that's the it's easily made. He's been endorsed by John Stockton, who's going to be speaking at the uh, rally, I believe. Um, like you're going to get a thousand signatures, and you're and I believe he has five hundred dollars. In fact, at the current moment, uh, RFK has more cash on hand than Nikki Haley. Though after all these people give him give her money, it won't actually you know <laughs> that won't be the case anymore. So the point is that like third party candidates are going to matter this cycle in a way that I think that they have not mattered since the nineties with Ross Perot. Yeah. So um, let's, so let's break that up. So I, I think it'll, it'll even matter a little bit in the, in the primaries, but my point was going to be that all of these things, let's say, you know, half a dozen things happen that are quote unquote bad for Trump. You know, the problem is there's a lot of Trump lead. There's way more Trump lead than, you know, five or six things that might cost him three or four points. Um, dude, I, you know, I would not be surprised. I think it's overwhelmingly. No, I won't say overwhelmingly. It's likely he will not win by the margins that his polling is showing in the primary. He will win by a somewhat smaller margin than that polling is showing. There'll be some consolidation. Those bad things will happen, blah, 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 blah. People will win their home states or late state or whatever it is. But, you know, he's going to be the nominee, I think. And then the general, now now the third-party candidates matter a whole lot more. And getting back to the beginning of my comments, which is like, you know, yes, he's the favorite today, but there's a year of history left to happen. You know, that's going to be about fundamentals, which, for good or for ill, that's what decides presidential elections, basically, economic fundamentals and, you know, a few big structural things. And it's going to be, a, you know, are, do Americans still feel like prices are high? You know, the economy can be as good in terms of growth as it has been but if americans still are noticing committing the crime according to the white house of noticing that things cost 20 to 25 percent more than they did four years ago that's a big problem for biden if mansions in if uh, you know jfk uh sorry rfk jr you know continues to uh stick in people's minds you know that's going to be a big problem for him um so really matter and you know i saw a thing today from one of these open intelligence sources that says that uh venezuela is about to invade guiana they're going to start a, a land grab in guiana in south america so we're potentially going to have another land war this one in our own hemisphere you know there's tons of surprises and things that could happen that are going to affect the fundamentals, um, all of which is a very long-winded way of saying, yes, Trump is absolutely the front-runner today, but the election is not today. Um, I want to uh, spend at least a few minutes just talking about this anticipated uh, debate. Uh, this uh, podcast is going to be coming out uh, before it on uh, between uh, Sean, Han I mean, uh, sorry, between uh, uh, Gavin Newsom, Ron DeSantis, and uh, moderated by Sean Hannity, and it's framed as this like red versus blue state debate. The RNC initially tried to stop it, but it was just so clear that they were not going to be able to stop it because it's not Republican versus Republican that uh, it's going to proceed forward. I, I'm going to be watching it. I'm, I'll write something about it. Uh, you know, I'm looking forward to it with interest, regardless of whether DeSantis is someone who, you know, is not going to be able to go anywhere in terms of the 2024 uh, nomination battle. Uh, I certainly think that Gavin Newsom is somebody who's going to be part of the future of the Democratic Party. So it's interesting that they've just chosen to uh, actually go up against each other. I'm curious about your opinions of what each will be trying to get out of this uh, and how you expect each to perform. Yeah, I think I, I think that I've been thinking about this today. So 
I I don't have high levels of confidence, but what I think would be interesting, there's something that Newsom could do, which is that he could be a good um he could be a good Biden proxy. He could be a good soldier for Joe Biden. And he could go in there and, you know, deliver sort of rote standard issue Democratic Party attacks on DeSantis. I'm not sure that that helps Gavin Newsom that much. Right. So the question to me is like, you know, we will see whether he's doing this, you know, on behalf of the Democratic Party or whether he's doing it for his own personal profile. I don't think it's a secret that we we all we, we, we've you know been talking about this for months, actually. And we all think that Newsom is just sort of itching or waiting to get, you know, called off the bench, potentially not even called off the bench, potentially um, make a proactive decision to get in this race. But certainly if he doesn't do it this time, it's going to be next time. And so if he if he's doing it for his own public profile, I ex- I actually expect to see less sort of rote attacks on DeSantis, less a- attempts to um, to join DeSantis and Trump at the hip, which is what, you know, I think it will be the instinct of Democratic establishment to do. Um, I don't think, New- you know, Newsom will necessarily focus on that. Um, I think he's going to try and sound like a mainstream politician that independent voters could see themselves voting for. I don't think that's who he is, but I think that's the image, the image that he is interested in cultivating. Um, You even saw, you know, Sean Hannity say that he's had he's developed this unexpected friendship with Newsom that, you know, that the two quote, you know, hit it off right away. Um, I think that's much more the way he's going to go about it. Um, I could be wrong, but that's kind of where I see. I think we're going to see a surprisingly restrained um, at least in terms of crazy left-wing stuff, uh, Gavin Newsom. Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to be a bulldog contra DeSantis, but I don't think you're going to see a DSA, uh, you know, sympathizer in Newsom. Now, DeSantis, it's clear, you know, it's clear what he needs, and he needs his campaign needs a shot in the arm. He needs to be shown owning a lib, a high-profile lib, a particularly smug-looking lib. And so I expect him to be sort of what he's been at the at the GOP debates, which is to say competent, detailed with, you know, um, knowledgeable um, and disciplined with a few weird ticks that everybody will inevitably seize on and make fun of him for. Yeah, you, it's there's so much here to unpack, <laughs> you know, that that it's I, I agree with Dan that, that this is Gavin Newsom doing this for Gavin Newsom, but yeah, I mean, you got to give the devil his due. Can you imagine any Republican going on to MSNBC and having Joy Reid or Rachel Maddow be the moderator for a debate? Right, we're we're doing this in reverse. We're saying it's with Gretchen Whitmer or something. Um, the, I mean, I always appreciate the people that'll basically answer the bell anywhere, anytime. Uh, so, you know, I I think it's a look. I, I don't, you know, it seems like there's almost nothing but upside for Newsom, right? That you know, I mean, maybe some of you know some of your people will tune in to, you know, to to Fox. They'll get over the ickiness, but you know, how many of them won't just out of you know out of principle? And you know, it's basically a place for you to kind of road test, you know, kind of a somewhat different audience. Um, you you have to think that the, that the 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 implications for Biden are going to be secondary at best in in Newsom's mind. I mean, I think he is very cleverly positioned himself to sort of be, you know, potential sort of heir apparent in a democratic party that really doesn't have one right now. Um, 
you know, I, I think that the vice president would style herself that way, but I, I don't know that most of the party establishment would see it that way. And, you know, Nat, Newsom has been, you know, over his career has been kind of nimble. Uh, you know, when he first ran for uh, San Francisco mayor, um, he was basically, I think, beat out a, a very competitive Green Party guy that was also on city council at that point in time. And Newsom was, I guess, kind of the centristy kind of guy there. Uh, you know, I think, you know, Newsom could, you know, if you're thinking about sort of, you know, I'm sort of thinking out loud here, but one of the things Newsom could do is basically, I mean, he could economically triangulate, you know, that the Ron DeSantis is going after Disney, but look at all this stuff we're doing in California to bring businesses in and create yeah, jobs. That is one point that somebody made, which is that these are the two Disney, Disney heavy states. Yeah. Uh, right. You know, and you could contrast that in a way that I think uh, Newsom will almost certainly try to do, which will sort of, he wants to put himself as the guy of, I'm about freedom. I'm about choice. Ignore all these other things. Um, at the same time, I mean, Newsom can use this opportunity to hippie punch, yeah. right? As he has on a couple of things where it's like, guys, like, you turned it up to 11 on that. I'm comfortable with this going to maybe nine on, right. on the progressivism. So I, uh, I, look, I to... the only the, the, here's the thing. Here's the line that he could say that I think would both win him the debate uh, and would make him have a more difficult road uh, uh, going forward temporarily, but would ultimately be the smart play. He could come out there and just say, hey, look, we looked at reparations and that's a bunch of BS. <laughs> Yeah, or something like that. But but right, I actually I, I expect a kind of rope a dope thing is maybe the way to think about it because you know Newsom is I've called him an ambulatory Sauvignon Blanc and a, a walking bottle of wine and and all kinds of other things. I think he's slimy and is very very much has a the air of a kind of Jack Nicholson's Joker to him. So I think it's very easy for him to slip into a really smarmy used car salesman mode but he is also capable but gotham city says, was pretty okay with that when he was <laughs> yeah, uh, throwing out but, dollar bills uh, yeah money 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 who do you trust you know so but I, I think as you pointed out john like he's also capable of um you know sister soldier moments and hippie punching and all that stuff and i think if he's got the discipline to do that it'll be devastating for desantis because desantis is looking to use Newsom as a stand-in for the whole woke establishment. And if DeSantis just yields, uh, sorry, if, if Newsom just gives ground and makes DeSantis chase him around the ring and tire himself out, then he could win in a really big way where DeSantis looks like he's, you know, trying to land the haymaker and Newsom is dancing, mm -hmm. you know, and not committing and triangulating. And he looks like the reasonable one. I could totally see, see, see what, what, what I hear from you less is, is less Joker and more, you know, you admire it, you know, the perfect organism. You admire its purity as a survivor, unclouded by conscience and remorse or delusions of morality. <laughs> I don't think he's quite at the. Uh, is that is that an alien reference? It's a xenomorph. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's quite at the xenomorph level, but I wouldn't. I like I said, I think he's probably got Merlot in his veins, not acid. But um, yeah, so, I think he could win in a big but, way. But let's be honest: the thing <laughs> I'm most looking forward to are the Trump tweets or or whatever to talk about how Gavin Newsom is like five inches taller. Uh, than DeSantis <laughs> yeah. uh, that I'm just like looking through Wikipedia. I didn't realize that, uh, that Gavin also played uh, college baseball at Santa Clara, which I would Im imagine is probably 
at a higher level of baseball Let, than uh, let's let's be real let's be real about this though what will tiktok do with this they have their favorite governor going against possibly their least favorite governor like the, the outcome of this from the chinese perspective is going to be pretty interesting yeah and and you're also going to see trump probably say you know that you got to give you got to give Newsom this he's got good taste in in women right he'll probably oh, drop that, Lord. that reference oh 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 okay last uh last thing um so we've seen obviously this uh this thing play out uh over the past couple of weeks regarding this public lobbying from the former uh Obama Biden uh, folks, uh, including the former president himself, against the stance that Joe Biden has had on Israel uh, and generally the response that they've had to Gaza. Now, behind the scenes, of course, we've all probably read the stories uh, about you know micromanaging of the Israeli conflict and, and the role that Anthony Blinken is playing there and the you know push for ceasefire and the like. But there's this NBC News report uh, that went around this morning about Kind of the way that this, the, the, it's clearly just, you know, staffers sniping at each other, basically, um, about what's been going on. And the report being that, like, Obama's people were sending his medium posts to the White House and giving them heads up that he was going on Pod Save America and he was going to be critical. And, and Biden, meanwhile, saying that, like, Obama always should have listened to him back in 2014, uh, in the previous Gaza conflict when, uh, there was, uh, you know, issues related to this where, you know, he he felt that, you know, his his approach of, you know, which is always Joe's approach of glad hand, hug the person, uh, try to sort of endear yourself uh, and then turn around and use that to make them do what you want, as opposed to kind of publicly criticizing them as Obama did at the time uh, and having to extract things out of them. Uh, and that's it's a really interesting report in the sense that it's clearly like these staffers sort of saying, but Joe thinks that he's in charge, uh, that his approach was always the right one, that he's been vindicated by history uh, and that, uh, you know, he's right now uh, and that Obama is out there kind of sniping at him publicly and his, and his uh, fellow allies are sniping at him publicly uh, because he thinks that Joe is basically being too pro Israel. Uh, how much do you, uh, view this as being kind of an, ex an extension of the Axelrod expressions about we need to get Joe out of there. You know, I mean, effectively, that's the way that I read it. Uh, and a lot of the other sort of Obama-centered people being very sour on Joe from the beginning, being sour on him in 2020, uh, being sour on him even in 2022 uh, in, in anticipation that he was going to have a terrible midterm. And now Joe kind of reasserting himself as being, no, I'm I'm the guy in charge I am the smart guy in the party. Uh, you know, I I, I don't get I no can do respect, stuff, etc. Yeah. I'm smart, not like they say. <laughs> not like they say. I'm dumb. <laughs> no, what I, do you think I, of this? No, I, I I listened to an interview with uh, Franklin Foer, who's written a book on. Uh, he he was embedded with Biden for a year, and that's yes, his, I read the book. Yeah, that's his view. Um, I take it, and you know, the the problem is this. I, I, Mike, well, come as no surprise. I think Obama's foreign policy legacy is like like disastrous, not low key disastrous, as the kids say. I think just like across the board, whether you want to talk about Iran, 
I, the rise of ISIS. You want to talk about miss completely swinging and missing on Russia, famously, you know, the 1980s called. You want to talk about, you know, being about 10 years too late on sounding the alarm on China. I mean, just across the board, Venezuela, take your pick. So, you know, against that extremely low bar, I also think Obama was not, you know, his whatever personal. Um, Last hundred charisma. years, Wilson, Wilson, LBJ, Obama. Right yeah, I mean, we're talking about that kind of level. Yeah. So like, you know, his personal kind of I want a Nobel Prize charisma, which I think is exaggerated anyway, aside, he's also a Vulcan, you know, and and he's outside the he was outside the kind of uniparty consensus of American foreign policy. He got rolled a lot by that consensus. Famously, he got rolled in Afghanistan. You know, that was one of one of Biden's, you know, things he was dead set on doing is not getting rolled by by the uniparty consensus on Afghanistan. So all of which is to say that, you know, Biden's is better than that, but it ain't much of a bar. Um, And, you know, the infighting, you know, it's kind of pathetic. I don't know who thinks it sounds great to say, oh, President Obama sent his medium post to Biden. I mean, that's that's just kind of pathetic. I mean, we've heard mixed, we've heard mixed reports on um, it's like as bad as true socials, you know, so it's like we've heard mixed reports on what what Obama is up to and how much influence he has everything from there's a shadow cabinet to he's a podcaster. I'm a little bit more inclined to he's a podcaster. No offense against podcasters. Yes. Some of them are my closest friends. But um <laughs> You know, so so I don't really know what to say about that. I I think he's probably closer to a podcaster than a shadow president, um, and I don't think it'll matter. I, I'll just close by with one thought: is that you know a lot of this, and I'm starting to see people point to this because there's been some recent polling, but there's Pew polling on this going back many many years. A lot of this is is about the growing gender gap in the bases of the parties, and I think that's going to be an increasing. Uh, conversation that is increasingly important because, um, you know, the everyone who has paid attention to social media and saw the folks tearing down the posters of the kidnapped Israeli children and also just looked at the die-ins and the sit-ins and the shout-ins at these universities across the country have seen that a lot of this movement and just, just recently the Oakland uh, city council meeting, I don't know if you guys saw that. Yeah, I did. Video. Yes. So they're all, it's all women. And indeed, the millennial gap between men and women on party affiliation is double the size of the uh, Gen X gap. And it's only growing bigger. And I think that's the more important schism. Um, And I think both of those guys, Obama and Biden, are to the right of where the Democratic uh, base's consensus on foreign policy and consensus broadly is headed. Oh, no, that's the base on foreign policy. I think that's sort of the, the loudest and most active voices. Well, the, the only, the only, just 500 uh, I State want you, Department staff. Yeah, that's actually the, the deputy director of the CIA. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, but that, I mean, I, I think to agree with some of those things, it's, I mean, but you're saying where the base of the party is. I think that those are elites within the party. I mean, we we all know, and it's something that I think that you know, I was listening to a 538 podcast the other day with, you know, Patrick Ruffini and Rui Deshera that. Uh, the perspectives of progressive, you know, upscale whites are like way, 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 way overrepresented in the Democratic Party coalition. Um, you know, and I, I think that if you look at kind of what legislators are saying, even progressive ones, now and there's been some exceptions. You know, Peter Welsh just came out for a ceasefire yesterday, but you know, looking at sort of who was the progressive poster boy in, in 22, 
uh, John Fetterman. And again, like, who would have thought we'd say John Fetterman has been a beacon of moral clarity on, uh, you know, the Israel conflict recently. Um, You know, I I do think that in some ways, the whole thing about like, we sent our medium post is like such a cell phone that like, you can't even get on the phone with your, you know, former VP for eight years and like steer stuff or having your guys embedded in, in these agencies uh, is, is not enough. Um, again, it's, it's like we, inv- we invited President Biden to subscribe to our Substack. You know, yeah. like- <laughs> he still and he still hasn't opened it on the the inner tubes. I mean, I, I checked it today, and and I mean, I sent it to him three days ago. He still hasn't opened it. What's can someone open it for him? Does left Matt on know how? red. You were left on red. <laughs> the three dots, they're still there. You know. So anyway, look, I I just think the thing that's interesting about this is, you know, to the degree that we're kind of analyzing this, there's so many people in this administration who are not Biden people. Uh, meaning that there are some people who are Biden people, but, you know, and, and they're very prominent, but there are a lot of people who are Obama C team people, you know, yeah. they were the, the depth sex and the, the lower level people who, you know, got jobs, but didn't get jobs that were so profitable over the course of the Trump four years that they wouldn't leave them to go back into government to try to climb. And I think that, you know, when you look at that kind of animosity from within, you know, particularly the state department, uh, you're looking at people who are wishing that Obama was still in charge uh, on a fundamental level and wishing that his approach was still being used. I think that what's interesting about this, particularly given that we're talking on the day when Chuck Schumer goes out and gives a speech about anti-Semitism, where he says, you know, explicitly that the people who are out there in the streets echoing these pro-Hamas slogans, uh, you know, are not neo-Nazis or card-carrying members of the Klan but are people who Jews in America felt were their fellow travelers, you know, on the liberal side for many years, you know, that criticism reads as a criticism of the post Obama Democrat voter, not the Biden Democrat voter uh, who is still the kind of just absolute, you know, essentially unchanged from, from the nineties, you know, uh, foreign policy voter from my perspective. Uh, And that's something that I think, you know, again, it's a low bar to clear, but I think Biden's cleared it. And I think that that bothers some people in Washington. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in Chicago in August next year, uh, where the Democratic Party will be returning to presumably nominate him and Kamala Harris, unless something dramatic changes. So this has been Thunderdome for Dan, for John. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll head over to the spectator.com, subscribe to our newsletters to uh, to the print issue. Uh, we have a great issue out uh, this. Uh, in fact, uh, I just got it today uh, myself uh, with uh, some great art in it. And it's a great uh, you know, holiday gift, I would say, uh, for someone who wants a different perspective on what's going on in the world today. Uh, we will be back next week uh, with more to continue to analyze this incredibly crazy 2024 election.